if you're innovating, creating, or making a difference. This show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. Half the lights went off and I couldn't figure out what was going on, but the spaceship was going into survival mode and my crewmates, I turned around and there they all were. And they said, what did you do? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know what I did, you know. What if getting your technology to work right meant facing a life-threatening situation? Colonel Doug Wheelock is no stranger to those circumstances. As a NASA astronaut, Colonel Wheelock, or Doug as he prefers to be called, has flown aboard the International Space Station twice so far. And both times, emergency repairs have come up, and Doug and his fellow spacewalkers have received awards for both their ingenuity and their bravery in carrying them out successfully. During NASA's 2016 International Space Apps Challenge, Doug was on site at Pasadena's cross-campus facility to assist the teams as they used NASA open data to solve, quite literally, any problem in the universe. Doug, what do you remember very best about growing up in Binghamton, New York, that got you looking towards the stars? Well, in, when I grew up in Binghamton, we call it Bingo Town now, but uh, a great place to, to grow up and be a kid, and we actually lived east of there, kind of toward the Catskill Mountains, and it's a beautiful rural area. When I was growing up, Binghamton had a great number of high-tech industries that were there. They since have gone. There's a little bit, some remnants left, but but certainly not, not the heyday it was back in the 70s and early 80s. But the, the thing that sparked my interest the most was there was a company there called Singer Link, which eventually became CAE Link and then went on to... They moved out of Binghamton, but they built all this flight simulation hardware for all the military jets and a lot of the commercial big airliners, and and they helped with the space shuttle simulation and things like that. And so flight simulation was right there at my back door growing up in that area and being out sort of in a rural area, but having access in the way of tours and just programs through our school, having just a glimpse into into flight and flight simulation was what sparked it for me. Of course, I was a kid when we walked on the moon. I was a kid and I was in, going in the fourth grade when we put people on the moon and I saw that happen and saw that, you know, the, all the flight simulation stuff that was happening there in my my little town and, and it just Gave me an interest in flying. I just wanted to fly. So Fast forward to now with six spacewalks under your belt, and you say you'd like to go on another one. Is that correct? That's correct. I'd love to go again. And now I'm training our new astronauts that have just come into the program. We had a new class back in 2013. We will have another class that we'll be bringing in of astronauts in 2017. And so I've been training those folks how to the art and science of doing a spacewalk. It's it's hard work on the ground, but in space, when you have no gravity and everything is weightless, it's more like a dance. And so there's, there's some fine choreography and cadence to operating with the suit. And so I've had the, just the privilege and pleasure of teaching our new astronauts what it's like to do a spacewalk and how to be efficient with the suit and how to work together with the suit and not get into a wrestling match with the suit because the the suit is going to win I always tell them and so so how to make the suit work for you and it's it's just a pleasure 
training these young folks. I hope to go again to space and maybe get another spacewalk or, or two or three. That'd be great. It's a, it's a wonderful experience. It's a life-changing experience. And now I have the pleasure of, of helping others realize that dream as well. I'm going to ask you to give the listeners and me a lesson on spacewalking. Let's assume that we're wearing that suit, all of us sitting in front of you. You're teaching us as your new class of astronauts. First of all, how much does the suit weigh? So the suit weighs 350 pounds. So I weigh 200 pounds. And so when I get in the suit and I go outside, my mass is the equivalent of five to 600 pounds. And so everything is weightless in space, but the equation F equals MA, Newton was was a wise scientist and engineer, and F equals MA still holds true in space, and so mass is vitally important, and the realization of distribution of mass and moving a mass around, including yourself, you have to be very cognizant of what you're doing. So if you imply a huge force to that mass, you're gonna go flying off into space, which you don't wanna do. And so you wanna still stay connected to the spaceship, and so, so every bit of movement is like a fine ballet on the fingertips. So it's just fingertip control. And so the suit, the first thing I tell the people that are training in the suit is like, because we train underwater, which is very difficult strength-wise. You need a lot of upper body strength because you're dragging yourself through the water. We, we can replicate neutral buoyancy. So we're floating and it sort of feels like you're in space, but you still have gravity obviously in the pool. And when you drag yourself through, you're not dragging yourself through an empty vacuum now, you're dragging yourself through the pool, so there's a lot of drag, so it takes a lot of upper body strength. But when you get to space, we, we're fearful that that will turn into negative training for them. So, so I always, always, in their training, we point out, it's like, now remember, when you're in space, just use your fingertips, just use your fingertips, nice and easy. Slower is faster, we say, in, in the suit, so... That would never have occurred to me. You make it look so super simple. Now, suppose that we've all passed astronaut training. We're in space. What's an average day in the life like on an International Space Station when you're doing a workday? So an average day, we operate the space station on GMT, Greenwich Mean Time. We wake the crew up at, well, crew wake is at is 6 a.m. Greenwich. And so for Houston, we're depending on if we're in daylight saving time. So mission control is usually either five or six hours behind the crew in time. And so our first crews come in about midnight for the crew wake and, and the crew operates, we operate their day and they, we have crew sleep scheduled for 9.30 p.m. Greenwich every day. And so a day in the life of an astronaut on the space station, we try to work Monday through Friday and then give Saturday and Sunday off like a weekend, much like we would run a laboratory or something here on, the, on Earth. And so we try to hold to that schedule, but space has lots of surprises for us. So there's always something breaking or not quite working right. And that's why we have these space ops challenges because we build a piece of hardware and then we get it to space and all of a sudden that doesn't work. It's like, what's different about this space environment that's causing this not to work? And so then we bring it back down to earth to our innovators and say like, okay, we've got this issue, help us solve this problem. And so, so the day in a life, we do a lot of science. We work out, they give us two hours each day to run on a treadmill. We have a treadmill, we have a stationary bicycle, and we have a weight machine that's kind of like resistive exercise. And so we try to keep two to two and a half hours of exercise every day, about six hours of science. And then the rest of the time is 
repairing things that have broken or or taking pictures or tweeting. It's the, all these things are at the expense of sleep and your free time. So some, but most people, and I found this for myself as well, in your off-duty time, I was just glued to the window or I would write. I would, I started writing like poetry and short story kind of thing formats. And I talked on the ham radio to different listeners around the globe. So those were my pastimes up there. And, and so day in a life is probably much like working in a laboratory here on earth. Only at the end of the day, you, you don't go home. You just go to your, to your little personal space, your little crew sleeping quarters and do your work there, or look out the window or write or something. It occurs to me to wonder when you refer to crew sleep, how in the world do you sleep when there's 16 sunrises in a day? Yeah, so we, we're orbiting the Earth pretty quickly. It's once every 90 minutes or so. And so every 45 minutes, we're getting a sunrise or sunset. And, you know, the beautiful thing about the space station, there are these wonderful windows, which can wreak havoc with your circadian rhythm, your sleep rhythm. But our crew quarters are in a module that has no windows. And so you just have the ambient lighting and so when we hit crew sleep we just turn the lights off inside the and we just sort of had this led kind of little arrows if you need to fly to the bathroom or something you know you can do that during the night but we create sort of like a simulated night it could be it could be bright and sunny outside the windows but we have window shutters we'll close the window shutters and we'll turn off the lights or dim the lights and we'll go to our sleeping quarters Let's talk for a moment about hacking and things breaking. So far, I'm hoping your next space flight is a little bit less dramatic than the other two have been. What do you do when you get that alarm? What's the first thing that goes through your mind when you hear aboard, aboard, uh-oh? Yeah, so we when an alarm goes off or somebody says, you hear, oh, no, or aboard or something like this, we are trained at NASA to, and I actually wasn't kidding yesterday when I talked to the folks, so he mentioned where we go through like a triage in our own mind. And so first thing, when I hear an alarm, it's like, am I on fire? And I look around me, do I see something with smoke? Before I even look at a computer or what the alarm is, I hear the alarm go off. Are my ears popping? So is, is there a rapid decompression of some sort? And can I breathe? Is there some sort of toxic release into the atmosphere? So, And you go through that pretty quickly mentally. So alarm goes off. Am I on fire? Are my ears popping? Can I breathe? Okay, I've triaged the situation. We're all alive. So we have some time to kind of cipher out what's happened. And oh, by the way, we also have Houston and our control centers around the around the world where we can get some help from the ground as well, because they're getting telemetry, obviously, from the space station, so they can help us kind of sift out. And normally, if we have an alarm, like when went off when I was there, the computer screens that we're looking at are being populated like with caution, warning, caution, warning. So it's all coming into this database, this buffer queue where you can see them all, but as you're reading them, there's more coming in. So, so it's a bit overwhelming. And so we do go through a a protocol of how to dig, how to drill down visually to the root cause. And normally it's a EPS, electrical power system trip or some sort of over temperature or something like this. And so usually in, in simulations, the ground always is kind of racing the crew to see who can decipher the problem first. It's sort of this fun little game that we play in simulation, but it helps us prepare for 
the day the real alarms go off, your your teams are like, I'm going to find this before anybody else kind of thing. And it's like, okay, here's the problem and here's what you need to do and things like that. And so, and we also always kid that the first step in any procedure is step number one, don't panic. So, so, but while you're doing step number one and not panicking, you're going through the triage of, you know, the fire or decompression or toxic release in the atmosphere. So it's, they train us well. And so when those alarms went off, I found myself without even thinking going into that triage protocol and I'm looking around, is anything, do I see smoke? Can I breathe? You know, my ears, okay, everything seems okay. And we can, we have some time to take a look and see what's going on. From the emergencies that you've had to deal with on the International Space Station, what's your favorite story to share about after you realized you weren't on fire, you could breathe, and there wasn't smoke going into the atmosphere of toxic chemicals? <laughs> So my, fav- my favorite story on that was in 2010, it was actually July 31st. It's amazing how these significant emotional events, you know, kind of you can measure. I knew where I was when this happened. And, and so it was a Saturday evening. It was 1130 GMT. So we were supposed to be in bed, really. I was, I was running on the treadmill and then I was looking out the window. It was a Saturday evening. So, so I was just and my crewmates were asleep. And my favorite story on this was just when the alarms went off, I went through the triage procedure. I looked around. I was like, what is going on? Half the lights went off. You know, I heard fans turning off and I couldn't figure out what was going on. But the spaceship was going into survival mode. It goes automatically into survival mode when one of these events happens. And it's it was getting really, really quiet. And I, I was the only one up. And my crewmates, before I... I turned around and there they all were, you know, my five crewmates. And they said, what did you do? And I was like, I, I, I didn't, I don't know. I don't know what I did. You know, and there's a period where you go through, it's like, what did I last touch? You know, did I, you know, and sort of kind of trace your steps back to what had just happened. But, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it wasn't anything that any of us did. It was a, a pump that broke on the outside of the space station, but that pump controlled half of the station so half of our power which is running all of our science and all of our oh by the way it's also running all of our equipment to give us oxygen to breathe and to scrub out our co2 out of our exhalation and to clean our water and you know just everything on board the station and so we sort of jokingly it took us three weeks to figure it out and we did three spacewalks and we ended up fixing the station and took three weeks later we brought it back up to full power but during that interim period we sort of joked with each other it's like okay you three you hold your breath and us we're gonna breathe now so and we sort of we had a nice joke about that but it really the co2 levels went up because we didn't have enough scrubbing capacity we talked about maybe one crew abandoning the station leaving three people there that was an option if we couldn't get the systems back up and running we could just send three people home on a soyuz and that way our life support system could sustain the three others so it was it was sort of a mixture of you felt like you're in an apollo 13 movie maybe in a macgyver show and uh, and then sort of a uh, situation comedy you know on on board and so we had a lot of fun with it, and afterward we could look back and we could say, like, never have I ever experienced a team teamwork like I experienced with that whole maneuver. Because we knew that 
there were hundreds of people on the ground that were working overtime just to figure out how what the problem is and how we're going to fix it. And so it's just a, actually a privilege and, a, and an honor to now look back and watch how that all unfolded where you begin to realize the power in creative thinking and teamwork, you know, and, and I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. So as we think about creative thinking and teamwork, what are some of the other hacks that you would like to see result out of space apps here that would help avoid something that you can't have prepared for when you're on the International Space Station? Well, these actually, I've seen some great apps that folks are working on. And in the area of sensors and robotics, we there are things, there's so much going on on board the station. We have like over 200 science experiments in four different laboratories. And we essentially have six people keeping the ship sailing with maintaining everything and just keeping the ship upright and sailing and then running all the science, monitoring our fans that are running, computers that are running and things like this. And so I've heard this morning, just this morning, talking to folks about putting sensors, even just passive sensors that are maybe something that you wear in a sleeve pocket or something and it's monitoring the air that's that you're, if you're in like an enclosed space and there might not be proper mixture of the air, it can sense like, hey, you need to get a fan in here to work or something. It'll it'll trigger like a, a message like your CO2 level is now this amount of, and, and they're already talking about on board the space station, we have what's called a CCAA, which is a common cabin air assembly, which is the, the big complex that's monitoring and keeping the air at the same air we're sitting in this room in the way of constituents. And so, and it can sense any kind of toxic thing in the atmosphere as well. And so to see young people at these tables saying like, I've got a sensor that I have an idea of how we can, how we can put, you know, just slide it in your pocket or, you know, have it on your kneeboard or something. It's everywhere you go, it's picking up the constituents in, in that air. And it can, it can use that signal to send it to the carbon cabin air assembly and incorporate it into the into the hardware of the station too so just incredible ideas and then one other group was talking about they were going to develop a sensing system for a drone hoping that one day they can take it from drones to something on board the space station like a little robot that flies around like when we have spheres on board right now which are little robots that can fly around the space station and maybe monitor, again, monitor the air, maybe monitor science while we're sleeping. It can just kind of fly through and, you know, it can sense like differential pressure and things. Hey, I think we might have a problem over here. You might have something that carries like ultrasonic equipment on it. So it's like, I feel a differential in pressure and let me, you know, kind of sense around the hull or this hatchway or it's like, hey, there's a leak there or something like that. Even something that when we experience a leak, and we don't know where it is, we, we can evacuate to the, to the Russian segment, which is what we do now in the event of a leak. And then we go up and we try to find where the leak is. We can send a robot up there. And this robot, and just young people I was talking to this morning said, we can fly a robot up there and just kind of look around. And, and so we don't, the people can stay back in a safe haven and the robot can find out where the problem is and send information to the ground and back to the crew and everything. It's, it's wonderful to see all these ideas because we know just from experience, I mean, you think about, like, just example, like a couple weeks ago, we saw a rocket 
land on a, a first stage rocket, land on a barge floating around in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean after rocket launches, and rewind about you know a number of years, and there was a first idea. You know, I'm wondering if it was from Elon Musk or maybe one of his folks that worked there, or maybe somebody from outside of space. Hey, I have an idea. How about to save cost and and time, you know, in, in reflying hardware, how about if we bring one of these rocket first stages back and land it on a ship? And and when you think about ideas like that in their infancy, in the innovative stage, you think like half of us are like, that's crazy. There's no way you'd be able to do that, you know? And then we, then, you know, fast forward, you know, five, 10 years or whatever, or maybe one year, you know, and then you see a rocket land on a barge in the middle of the Atlantic and all of us are like, wow, that's amazing, you know? And that's how innovation works. I mean, it's just like, you know, it becomes, you know, it's this creative idea that somebody has in their mind. They have no idea really how to collaborate enough to get it to the end result, but that's where the innovators get together and we, we end up with a rocket landing on a barge in the middle of the Atlantic, so. As an innovator, what are some of your favorite resources that would spark ideas for, let's say, the young people who are going to want to go into astronaut training tomorrow, anybody who's creating anything or coming up with something new? What I tell young people, or any innovators of all ages, actually, is to is to always be curious. Because if we stop being curious, we stop dreaming and we stop innovating. And so sometimes we we kind of box ourselves in with limitations and we build those limitations around us and I always like talking about the concept of fear because we all face fear usually it's a fear of failure sometimes it's just a fear of being afraid you know or a fear of failing or a lot of times it's it's wasted energy and you know psychologists tell us that we're born with two fears you know with the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises and so we get on a rocket and we fly to space. And so, but we, when I think about that, I think, I don't know if that's true, but, but let's say it is true. Let's say, let's say we're only, when we're a little baby, we only have the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. Everything else that we're afraid of is created by us somehow, either mentally or somebody told us you need to be afraid of this or you're no good, you'll never amount to anything. And so don't bother innovating there. So we have a fear of, disappointing someone or a fear of failure maybe and so so my goal as a as an astronaut what I love to do so much is to go out to our students and say like it's okay to fail in fact failing is is how we learn you know and so to be able to have them strip away that fear to understand the difference between danger and fear you know we sometimes we complement one with the other and so we're like I'm not doing that because it's dangerous you know so and so in the space business we are in the business of managing risk and managing fear too because and you have to do this and when you're an innovator you have to manage it's different level of fear and different fear of different things but you have to manage that because because think about it. I mean even Einstein when he came up with this theory of relativity they asked him what is you know greatest fear is that I'm proven wrong. Somebody's going to prove this wrong one day. And that's my, and so what it does, I mentioned this morning, it ends up, ideas end up, you know, getting trampled on the editing room floor because it's like people are afraid, like, "Ah, I don't think I want to do that. That sounds like I'm turning the world of physics on its head, like Einstein did, you know? And so 
for us to over to face those fears and overcome or circumnavigate those fears or or get collaborate with somebody else who's faced those same fears you know that's that's the key to bringing these ideas to to the surface where they can actually you know be you know be ignited into this revolutionary idea so Doug thank you for your time today Absolutely, Dad. It's great uh, to spend time with you, and it's just a wonderful. I can't think of any place else I'd rather be on a Saturday. You know, just I mean, it's high energy here. Just some incredible ideas, and what's really, really cool is you go around all the different tables. It's like, and they give me their ideas. Like, why didn't I think of that? You know, that's how. That's the way innovation works. It's like we all have our own little great ideas, and it just takes getting the right team put together and to bring them to reality. So. You and I have been listening to Colonel Doug Wheelock, NASA astronaut and commander of the International Space Station's Expedition 25. You'll find more information on the International Space Station's missions on nasa.gov. That's nasa.gov. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more Over Coffee podcasts, our link is twomavericks.com. That's T-W-O-M-A-V-E-R-I-X.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.